Hey, I said this to the last service to ask you to turn around and see the people in the booth back there and wave at them. Uh, our great uh, tech team really helps us out each week. But this week, uh, the guy with the beard back there, Luke, uh, got married nine days ago. Nine days. He knows everything there is to know about marriage now. And so if you have any questions, he's the guy to ask. He's also uh, still receiving gifts. Uh, if you are interested, he will take them. So, hey, it's been a crazy week. Uh, remember when we only had to worry about uh, a pandemic killing us? Uh, now it's uh, nuclear war, war in Europe, Ukraine, all that kind of stuff. And so we need to continue to pray for Ukraine, pray for uh, uh, Russia, pray for the church in those uh, nations uh, in the midst of all the craziness going on, I've still heard some awesome stories of what God is doing uh, from our missionaries in uh, India and Vietnam and Cambodia and Central Asia. In fact, we have one of our own, uh, Rose Holman, uh, that is leaving on the 20th uh, for Tanzania uh, to work with an unreached people group there. So we want to be praying for Rose on our Facebook page, you can watch her video and learn how you can join her support team as either a prayer partner or a giving partner or both. And so I encourage you to do that. And if you have a copy of the Bible, I want you to open this morning to the book of First Corinthians. It's the seventh book in the New Testament. This morning, we're going to begin a study of this first letter to the church of Corinth. And as you turn there, I want you to think about it this way. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in like a, a social situation, a party or your or family gathering, somebody's house, where you find yourself kind of caught in the middle of a conversation that you're like five steps behind in. It's almost like a conflict or talking about something, arguing about something. And you're thinking, I don't even know what's going on. Like, should I even be here? Like, like, what are y'all talking about? Like, should, should I even be listening to what you're saying? Like, I think I need to go check on my kids or go to the bathroom or something. See, that's, that's how many of you will feel, uh, feel if you are opening the book of 1 Corinthians for the first time, uh, because, uh, in the letter to 1 Corinthians, to Paul's letter, it's actually the third of what will be at least five letters between him and this church. Like in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul references an earlier letter he's already written to them. In 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about a letter that they sent to him. And so we have as what we call 1 Corinthians. There's already been, been a lot of stuff that has uh, transpired. And we're only getting Paul's side of the conversation. Uh, and a lot has transpired because Paul actually founded this church in Acts chapter 18 on his second missionary journey. Uh, Paul left Athens after a disappointing ministry there. He arrives in Corinth and he plants the church and then he does something he hasn't done yet. Instead of planting the church, getting it established and move on, he stays for 18 months as the pastor of this church uh, equipping these people and caring for them. And then years later, and when he's in Ephesus on his third missionary journey, he writes this letter because he gets numerous, like really disturbing reports about the behavior of the church in Corinth. Like he starts hearing like crazy things about just 
immorality and Christians suing each other and folks getting drunk during communion and just all kinds of stuff. And so he writes this letter of correction to this church in a city that was very influential, very wealthy. It was deeply pagan. I mean, think Vegas, like the motto of the city was what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Like every chariot in uh, the city had a bumper sticker that said, keep Corinth weird. Like that's the city that he writes to here. And so as you open up this letter, you're probably going to see a lot of parallels between Corinth and greater Austin. Like if anything, Corinth really one-ups our own cultural and moral decadence because Corinth as a church is going through an identity crisis. Like one uh, pastor, Andrew Wilson, writes about the church, he says this, the most striking thing about the Corinthian church was not its size or its demographic makeup, but the degree to which worldly ideas and practices were accepted in the congregation. It's as if the boundaries between the church and the world had almost disappeared. Like the church in Corinth looked just like the city and not in a good way. It's not like they had a cross-section of the demographic and they said we're reaching the right people. Instead, they, their behavior, their attitudes were exactly like those of the city. He goes on to say, some churches struggled with opposition and persecution from the cities around them. The Corinthians faced the opposite problem. Assimilation into a pagan, promiscuous, competitive and idolatrous culture. Much of Paul's efforts in writing this letter aims to reestablish the differences between the church and the city and between Christianity and idolatry. That is one of the many reasons why this is such a helpful text for those of us living in the post-Christian West. And so as we open this letter this morning, Corinth has an identity crisis. They had forgotten who they are and they had forgotten whose they are. And I've told you all before that when my kids were still in the home and uh, when they were still younger, when, when I would take them to school and drop them off, they knew the last thing they were going to hear from me was the same thing they heard the day before and the day before that, which was, guys, remember who you are. Like you're going to get to school and somebody else is going to tell you who you are. Don't buy that. Remember who you are and remember whose you are. And that's what's happened in Corinth. They forgot both of those things. And as a result, their lives are a wreck and the church is completely jacked up. In fact, I love uh, Greg Lanier of Reformed Seminary explains the situation just bluntly this way. He says, as you open up 1 Corinthians, you are being parachuted into a dumpster fire. What a great, like, hey, visit Dumpster Fire Bible Church. Like, who wants to go there? Like, if you're driving down the road with your kids in the car and you see a dumpster on fire and a bunch of people gathered around it, don't stop for directions, right? Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't go to those people for directions because they're not in any position to give any. You wouldn't even stop for a red light or a stop sign. You would just keep on going. Well, guys, in this letter, Paul is the ones who's giving directions. And what he's doing is he's directing this church back to their true identity. He's, re he's connecting them back again to the gospel. Back to where they should find their identity and their security. 
Like their insecurity as a church, and they're very insecure. Like you see it in the fact that they are dividing into factions and into tribes based on their, you know, education or wealth or ethnicity or whatever, you know, dividing into tribes between Jews and Gentiles. Like they're, they're terrified of being canceled by their culture. And so you see the insecurity in that way. They're, they're terrified of being thought of as stupid. And so they're shrinking away from what they would consider the foolishness of the cross. I mean, they're very insecure, but that's just a symptom of a deeper problem. And the deeper problem is they've forgotten who they are and they've forgotten whose they are. And that's why they're so messed up. And guys, they are messed up. Like like I said, they're embracing immorality. And immorality at this level. Like some young guy shows up at church and he says, hey, I want you to meet my girlfriend and my mom. They're the same person. And you're like, wow, that's kind of, like that's beyond messed up. Like These are the guys who are getting drunk during the communion service and you think, how? Like those cups are like this big. <laughs> Like, what is in them? I mean, that's how wild it is. They're taking brothers and sisters in Christ to court and they're just living exactly like the world. So if you were to write a letter to this church, what would you tell them? I mean, if you've been a Christian for a while and you've studied this book and you know it, knowing what you know about the church of Corinth, like their moral state, their spiritual state, like what would your epistle say? What would your letter, first letter to the church of Corinth be? Like I know for me, mine would be brief, right? Like it would be a lot shorter. I would have gotten immediately to the point. I would say something like, hey, uh, Bobby called to be an elder by the will of God to the church that is in Corinth. What is wrong with you? Are you kidding me? Like what in the world? Y'all are living just like the world. You look just like the city. And that's not good. Repent. Later. Like that would be it. Like it would be a tweet. It would be the first tweet to the church of Corinth. And it would not be a happy tweet. Like it would be a very, very angry tweet. But that is not what Paul does. Because see, I'm not the pastor at Corinth. I'm the pastor here. And Paul had been their pastor. Paul had been their founding pastor. His heart was with him and his heart was broke over what he was hearing about in this city. And so instead of sending them 140 characters in an angry tweet, he writes them 16 chapters in this, the first of his two letters that we have in the New Testament. And in these 16 chapters, he gives them sometimes gentle and sometimes very painful and direct like instruction. In fact, as we study this book together, some of the things that he says to the church of Corinth, you're, th- you're going to be thinking, I don't know if we should read that in church. I wish I hadn't brought my kids. Like, this is awkward. Like, it's that direct. It's that bold. Like, Paul wanted to correct their wrong beliefs as well as their wrong behavior. Both were important. But it's kind of like parenting 101. Like if you're a mom or a dad and you're still like you still outweigh your kids, like you're still stronger and bigger than them, you can like control their behavior. But is that the goal? No, 
Like the goal of parenting is to, to reach the heart of our children. And so if all we do is control their behavior, there's going to come a time when that's not going to work anymore and they outweigh you or they're taller than you. That's happened to me. And guys, like when that happens, it's all over if all you've been trying to do is like control their behavior. What Paul does in this book is he applies the Gospel to their life. He kind of builds a theological framework as he deals very specifically with these situations. He builds a theological framework so that he can equip this this church in the next specific situation that's not mentioned in this book. How to deal with it from God's Word and from God's character. And so with that said... Let me read what Paul says, which is very different than what we would have probably said. Paul writes this, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sothenius to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the Word of the Lord. And so, as he kicks off this letter to the Corinthian church, he starts with what I've always called a love sandwich. Like when I was a youth leader and I would be training up my adult leaders, I would tell them, okay, you're going to probably have to have a sit-down confrontation with a student like one of these days, which the reality is it was like every single day, you're going to have to correct these kids. And I don't want you just going around like pointing your finger and just nailing them about their behavior. I want it to be in the form of a love sandwich, which is like this, like say one of my sons or my daughter acts up in a way that is like, like embarrassing or it's just wrong. It's just mean. It's ungodly. I would go to them and I would say, Hey buddy, you know I love you. You're my son. And I'm so blessed to be your dad. But, buddy, this can't happen. Like, you can't talk to your mom that way. You can't treat your brother that way. You can't hit your sister. Never, ever again. Do not do that. I mean, you're mine. And I love you. We are the Pruitts. But we will not do that, okay? Alright, buddy. Just know I love you. That's a love sandwich. Like a sandwich, like for me growing up in my poor household, a sandwich was like bologna and white bread, Right? a slice of white bread, a piece of bologna, and another piece of bread. And if I was being really wild, I would fry the bologna. Like that was good, right? That was a sandwich. In the same way, the relationship, the connection, the fact that I love them, that's the bread and the meat is the issue I need to deal with. That's what Paul does when he writes to the Corinthian church. But he doesn't do it as a technique, 
right? He does it as a commitment to this church. It's not like he went to apostle training school and they said, okay, while you're confronting a church, the first thing you need to do is remind them who they are and whose they are and that you love them and then nail them. And then like end with a, and by the way, grace to you, I love you. No, he's doing this because it's not a technique. It's he's doing this because he loves this church and he wants to see like Christ, like perfected in them. Like, like he wants to see that in their lives. He wants to see the gospel lived out by this church. Like I love how David Pryor explains this introduction. I think, in fact, the most important thing I can tell you today is just this first sentence he writes. He says, we need to register this primary truth. Paul looks at the Corinthian church as if as it is in Christ before he looks at anything else that is true of the church. Do you hear that? Like Paul looks at the Corinthian church as it is in Christ before he looks at anything else that's true. Yeah, their behavior is jacked up. Like they are really, really messed up. Before he deals with behavior, he reminds them who they are and whose they are because they're having an identity crisis. Uh, he goes on the right prior writes, the, that disciplined statement of faith. I love that. Like this statement about who they are in Christ is a statement of faith is rarely made in local churches. The warts are examined and lamented, but often there is no vision of what God has already done in Christ. Like if you're here this morning and you're looking for a perfect church, this is not it, right? Like a lot of people, they, they love to be critical of the church. And of course, the church has done a lot of messed up stuff. But can you for a moment believe what Christ says about the local church, about our church? If the first nine verses of this letter were deleted from the text, it would be impossible for any reader to come to anything but a fairly pessimistic view of the church at Corinth. I mean, if y'all know this book as you read it, like you, without the opening paragraph about their identity in the Christ, you, you would be thinking after chapter one, okay, like when is the fire going to fall from heaven? Like these people just need to go. Like Jesus needs to show up and remove that sacred lampstand and just kind of move on to another city because these people are the worst. And yet that doesn't happen because what Paul says about the church of Corinth is like a accurate and biblical description of who they truly are in Christ. What God says about them is the truest thing about them and it's the truest thing about us as well. Like Paul's confidence in this church is all based on God's faithfulness. Like he's not blowing smoke. Like this is not a technique. He wants to remind them of who they are and whose they are what their identity is. Now, all of us have multiple identities, right? Like I, I'm a, a son and I'm a brother and I'm a husband and I'm a father and I'm a grandpa. Like that's my identity. All of those things are true about me at the same time. Like someone could say, I'm Italian, I'm a dentist, I'm a libertarian, I'm an Aggie. Like, I'm a mom, I'm a wife, and I'm a Christian. 
Like all of those things could be true of that person at the same time. We all have layers of identity and we rank those layers of identity in levels of what is most important to us. Right? If your most important layer of your identity is that you're an Aggie, then you would put that as first. But what would happen when like the Aggies like didn't make the playoffs or the Aggies moved down a level academically? What would happen to your identity if your primary layer is I'm an Aggie? Or another example would be if your primary identity layer is like your job, your career. What happens when you lose your job? What happens when you get laid off? Right? You get emotionally rocked and impacted by that situation. If your number one layer of identity is that you're a wife or a husband, what happens if you get divorced? Or if your spouse dies? Are you still a person? Do you have an identity? If your number one layer of identity is that you're a, a dad or a mom, what happens to like your self-worth when your kids break your heart? Or, I mean... When your kids actually do what they're supposed to do, they, they graduate, they, they move away, they start their own family. And your whole identity has been wrapped up for 30 years and I'm mom or I'm dad. Now what are you? And so guys, understand this is what spiritual maturity looks like. Spiritual maturity is a process in which the most fundamental layer of your identity increasingly becomes who you are in Christ. I mean, you're still a dad, you're still a mom, you're still a dentist, you're still a whatever. Those things are still true, but they're down in rank. Like spiritual maturity is a process by which the most fundamental layer of your identity increasingly becomes who you are in Christ. And you begin to live that way. So you cannot consistently behave in a way that is different from what you believe about yourself. So if you believe you're a loser, you'll act like a loser. I mean, you will. If you're, if you believe that you're just broken relationally and you'll, like nothing could ever good can come your way, like that nothing good will come your way. Like it'll become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so what Paul does here is before he begins to hammer on behavior, and believe me, he will very directly, the first thing he does is he reminds them what they need to believe about themselves. And in the same way, guys, these are things we need to believe about us. If you are in Christ, like if you're a Christian, if you have your sins forgiven, if you believed in the Gospel, these things that are true of Corinth are also true of you. And here are the five truths that he tells them about themselves. First, they were called. Like they were called by God. Like four different times in this passage, he reminds them that they are called. One of those times, he just says, you're the church. Literally, the ecclesia, the called out ones from among the nations. Like Jesus has sent out the call and they have responded to that call. And as a result of responding to that call, they have been made saints and they have been sanctified. Like the word sanctified there literally means to be set apart for a special service. I mean, think of the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament and those instruments that were used in the tabernacle and temple that were only, they were sacred only unto the Lord, only for this purpose, right? 
Like you, you wouldn't use those instruments to make yourself a nice meal or to dig a hole. You know, like they were just for the Lord. God has sanctified you positionally and set you apart for Himself. They were called by God. Second, they were genuine believers. I mean, this is a hard one for me to believe. I mean, I know the letter of 1 Corinthians and know how messed up these people are. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, you think they're Christians? Maybe. I don't know. I don't get it. But Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Like Paul has complete confidence that these guys heard the message of the gospel, received the free gift of everlasting life and put their faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. In fact, if you read Acts chapter 18, that's actually why he stayed in the city in the first place. You know, Paul had just left Athens. At that time, it was the only church he ministered, I mean, the only city he ministered in that he was not able to plant a church in. And so he's disappointed as he leaves Athens and he shows up in Corinth and he begins to preach and people respond. And the church begins to form around that. And then, along with the church growing, persecution arises and the pattern of Paul up to this point was when persecution arises he wasn't afraid of persecution but looking at the you know the church being targeted along with him he would often kind of withdraw train up some people and leave the church under this leadership maybe that leadership with Timothy or Titus or Barnabas or Silas and he would move on to a new field And so he's probably thinking, that's what I'm going to do when God speaks to him in a vision. You read about it in Acts 18 and says to him, Paul, don't be afraid. Don't leave. Keep on preaching. And then God tells him this, for I have many people in this city. What does that mean? Only a handful of people had believed up to this point. What does it mean that God has many people in this city well it means that God in his his sovereignty has chosen people that in Corinth as soon as they hear the message of the gospel they will respond God has his elect in that city so Paul stay and be faithful and he was for 18 months until he left that city so second they were genuine Believers, they had embraced the message of the gospel and they were securely established. Number three, in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. That word confirmed literally means established. It means made sure. It means authenticated. It's a word used in the book of Acts when the apostles go out and are doing signs and wonders, miracles that authenticate or confirm the message of the gospel. Paul is saying of this church, listen, you were called, like you were called, you are Christians, and God is the one who's confirmed it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is how we know because fourth, they were gifted. Like Paul writes, you are not lacking in any gift. Like you have all the gifts. What other church can say that? Like you have them like completely. All of the gifts of the Spirit are evident in your church. Now Paul says this to a church that misused the gifts. The misuse of the gift is not the problem of the gift or the giver. It's the problem of the one who received it. Like I could have the gift 
of teaching and use it to fill my own wallet, to fill, to fill, fill up my own kind of insecurity, to gather a group around me who think I'm awesome. And that would not be the problem of the giver or the gift. It would be me. I would be the problem in that scenario. And so they have a problem with the gifts, but the gifts themselves are not the problem. They have them all. And then finally, the fifth thing that Paul says about them is to me the most stunning thing he says about this church. He says that they are sustained by God Himself. Listen to this. You have these gifts as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless. Hear that. He will sustain you to the end. Guiltless. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. If you know this church at all, you have to be thinking, what? Guiltless? These guys? But they're the worst. Are you kidding me? Like this church, God's going to sustain to the end, guiltless. But Paul is completely confident that they would be confirmed in the end in the same way that he was confident that his message was confirmed by their response in the giving of the Holy Spirit. He is now confident that they will be confirmed in the end by God because it's not about their behavior, it's about God's faithfulness. In fact, you see it from verse 4 to verse 9 where God is giving thanks, or where Paul is giving thanks to whom? He's giving thanks to God. Like who gave the Corinthians grace? In whom were they enriched? Like who is the one that sustains them? Who is the one that called them into fellowship? Who is the one that Paul says is faithful? Like Paul's thanksgiving is based completely on what God has done, what God is doing, and what God promises to do in the future. And this is it. God will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of Christ. God is faithful. Guys, just think about that. If you're a Christian and you've been a believer for a while, you've read this book like you know the Bible, you're a Bible guy, a Bible gal, and you know about the church of Corinth, when you read this, like God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of Christ, God is faithful, like, what do you think about that promise? It's kind of reckless. I mean, you make a promise like that, these people are just going to do whatever the heck they want to do. But guys, that's not reckless. That's the Gospel. Like, that's the Gospel. You stand in right relationship with God not because you go to church have been baptized, give money, are moral, are better than the rest of the people in your family or the rest of the people at your school. You are not standing in right relationship with God because you have it all together because, spoiler alert, you don't. Like you stand in right relationship with God because of the beauty and the perfection of Christ and His death on your behalf. I mean, think about what you know, knowing what you know about Corinth, this is a crazy statement. But how about this? Knowing what you know about you, I mean, I, I know me, and I know the you that you present to me. But I don't know your heart. Knowing what you know about your own heart, 
knowing what you know about your own track record spiritually, about the struggles that you have, about where your thoughts go and the things that your eyes follow. God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of Christ. God is faithful. How does that make you feel? Paul looks at the Corinthian church as it is in Christ before he looks at anything else that is true about them. He deals with their beliefs and then he deals with their behavior. Who is the hero of this story? I hope you didn't miss it, miss it. Like he's actually mentioned by name nine times in nine verses. Nine times in nine verses, Jesus Christ is called out by name. Do you think Paul's trying to communicate something? Like Jesus is the hero of y'all's story. And y'all, y'all have lost sight of him. You've forgotten who you are because of him. And so, God, as we, guys, as we come to a time of communion, you know, we have weekly communion here at Huddle Bible Church. Weekly, we get to be reminded of the gospel. Like in our face, right there, every week as we gather for communion, we're reminded that we stand in a right relationship with God because of the death of somebody else. Because of the righteousness of somebody else, the sacrifice of someone else, the holiness of someone else. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, taking my sin, dying and rising again, and my simple response to Him, I brought nothing to the, to the message of the Gospel except my sin and my failure. Because of that, I'm called by God. God did that. I'm a believer. He granted me faith. I'm established by the power of the Holy Spirit and gifted by Him. And I will be held secure in the hand of God and presented guiltless on the day of Christ, not because I have it all together, but because Jesus does. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the promise of the Gospel and the promise of this passage Father, the radical, just crazy, nonsensical promise that these sinners who are struggling and failing, who are dealing with uh, guilt and shame and failure and addiction and lust and anger and immorality and everything else, that You promise if they would simply come to You and trust what Your Son did on their behalf, You will hold them in your hand and that you'll present them guiltless, not clothed in their own righteousness, but in the righteousness of your Son. You will secure them and present them guiltless to Him. We thank You for that promise. In Jesus' name, Amen. Guys, we practice open communion as a church, and so if you would stand with me now as this first song plays... We would ask you to come to the front when you're ready during this song and get uh, the cup. It's actually two cups in one. Uh, Take your elements of communion and then we'll take them together at the end of this song as one church.
The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is His new creation by water and the Word. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. And with His own blood He bought her. And for her life He died. Elect from every nation, yet one over all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. At the Last Supper, with perfect knowledge that Peter would betray him three times within just a few hours, that the rest of the disciples would scatter. With perfect knowledge of your failures, of your struggles, of your issues, of your past, your present, your future, with perfect knowledge of that, Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of him. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the reality that this supper preaches to us we can stand right before You, clean and guiltless, without shame, brand new because of the Gospel. Lord, we thank You, Lord Jesus, that Your body is true food and Your blood is true drink in a mysterious way that nourishes us and strengthens us for this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus, you've been called. And you've been sanctified. You've been set apart as saints of God and He will sustain you blameless in the day of Christ's appearing. Do you believe that? Do you, will you live that this week? Like, will you hold on to that? Will you pray that into your own heart until it sings for joy that you have been made new. Because you will fail this week. And the enemy will whisper to your heart, there's no coming back from this. You are finished. But there's another voice that echoes from the cross, from Christ Himself, when you sin, he says, it is finished. He will sustain you to the end. Like, hold on to that. Live like that this week as you go forth from here. Our elders and some others will be down front if anyone needs to talk or pray after this service. Until then, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before His presence with great joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, 
and majesty and dominion and authority both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church.